reason for that is because the limiting parameters of the game have not been defined. And as a consequence of that, they're stunned by their infinite freedom into complete immobility. And what that means, in a sense, is that the, in the absence of serious constraint, there can be no choice, no freedom, no existence. And, and I believe this to be fundamentally true, just as the fact that human being is vulnerable is fundamentally true. Here's another example that I think is more, it's more personal to me, and it emerged in my imagination as a consequence of my contemplation of my son's vulnerability. So I have children. They are teenagers now. I still like them. Uh, when my, one of the things I was really struck by when my children were little was how perfect they were. Like, and, and I believe that that was the um, benevolence of God, in a sense. Children are tremendously difficult. They're a tremendous responsibility. But they're so perfect, and they manifest that perfection in such a, 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 a remarkable way that that's the payment of taking responsibility of bringing them into, the being, into being and caring for them. And the thing about being a parent is that the vulnerability of people is made manifest to you in a way that was never the case prior to that. And, and it, it's not, it's haunting and it's beautiful, but it's also exactly right in a way. And I was thinking, well, look at my son. He's a little kid. And, you know, you got to chase after him all the time. He can get sick. People hurt him. Uh, you know, people are going to be mean to him. He's going to be disappointed in his life. He's vulnerable. And, and it's, it's, it's a constant, tragic reality that he's vulnerable. And I thought, well, okay, let, let's say we want to do something about that. So let's say we make him so that no one can pick on him. So we can inflate him to about 20 feet high and equip him with a metallic skeleton and, and, a, and a cast iron exoskeleton. And you could equip him with a computerized intelligence that far supersedes his own. And you could remove his vulnerabilities one by one, hypothetically. And of course, more and more, we're in a position where we could do that in reality. And one of the things I realized right away was that as you remove the vulnerabilities, you remove the thing you love. And then I started to understand more deeply that vulnerability was a precondition for human being. And that was a desirable precondition because the things about human existence that are wonderful and, and remarkable are so integrally tied up with vulnerability that they're actually inextricable. The Jewish commentary, what the infinite lacks is the finite. It's a more abstract way of getting at the same thing. If you could do absolutely anything you wanted at any point and be anywhere you wanted and be anything you wanted, and if, if there was nothing that was out of your reach, there would be nothing to do because you'd be everything at once. And when you're everything at once, which is at least in principle the position of God, there's no story and there's no being. And there's something about being that is a story and without limitation, there's no story. So then the question starts to become with regards to consideration of human vulnerability. Is there a way to conduct your life in such a manner that the intrinsic vulnerability that characterizes your life is rendered not only acceptable but desirable? And to me, that's the central question of existence. And I tell you, get that wrong. You're on the wrong track. And if you're on the wrong track, man, you are in one terrible place. I would say with regards to tragedy, humans are vulnerable. And that's tragic. But if tragedy is the price that we pay for existence, then so be it, if existence is justifiable. And so tragedy itself, which is merely a revelation of our vulnerability, can't be regarded as evil. It's just a, it's a condition of existence. And so it's necessary to distinguish the tragic conditions of existence from evil before you can even address the problem. And I think what that means to some degree is you should not blame on the relationship between the finite and the infinite. 
terrible failings of humanity that can be laid directly at the feet of human beings. So earthquakes aren't evil, and cancer isn't evil, and mental illness isn't evil, and predators aren't evil. They're, they just are part of the way things are. But there are certain categories of human action that are definitely outside the parameters of mere tragedy, and those are the things we really have to get a handle on. Evil for me is differentiated from tragedy by its lack of necessity and its voluntarism. And it's a tenet, I think, of modern materialistic thought that there are social or material causes for actions. And it's an extraordinarily useful theory. And I think, but I think one of the unfortunate consequences of that is that we've tended to write off much of human misbehavior and attribute it to, say, insufficiencies in material conditions, which is, is not an it's not an acceptable theory. There are all sorts of human cultures that were characterized by virtually complete absence of material luxury, well-being, whose cultures were highly functional and, and highly moral. And to describe the propensity towards misbehavior as a consequence of economic inequality is entirely beside the point as far as I'm concerned. Evil is more pernicious than that which is generated for example, by social inequality. I think it's actually, although this is a terrifying thought in some ways, it's more appropriate to consider it a form of uh, demonically warped aesthetic. And I'll give you a couple of examples of what I mean by that, for example, because the, exa because the manifestation of this warped aesthetic, aesthetic makes itself apparent under certain conditions. So, for example, I think it made itself apparent in the imagination of the first politician who, con who coined the acronym uh, MAD, or Mutual Assured Destruction. That's an aesthetic of evil, to, to make a joke of a, a situation that catastrophic indicates the kind of malevolence that lurks behind the fact that such a condition exists. The motto on the gates of Auschwitz, I believe, in the Second World War, uh, Work will make you free. That's another manifestation of the aesthetic of evil. It's a terrible, terrible, ironic joke. And it, it, it's instructive to meditate on what sort of imagination would have the arrogance to tell such a terrible joke. The concentration camps are classic examples of evil. And I think by an analyzing at least certain kinds of events that occurred within them, it's easier to get a clear idea of what evil constitutes. And one, one of the stories that's always haunted me, I guess, is, I believe it's another story derived from Auschwitz. The prison guards in Auschwitz would take the prisoners who were already stripped of their dignity and to whatever degree possible, their identity and their culture and their language and their status of, as valuable beings. And yet that wasn't sufficient. They needed to be tortured in addition to that before they were killed. And the torture often consisted of uh, self-evidently counterproductive work, uh, uh, a situation that also frequently characterized activity in the Soviet Gulag Archipelago, where perhaps 60 million people met their death. A typical Auschwitz example was the requirement for prisoners to carry 100-pound sacks of wet salt from one side of the compound and then back again. Now, that's evil as far as I'm concerned, and, and you have to think about it from an aesthetic perspective, in a sense, because it's a celebration of horror, and it, it, it's, a, it's a conscious attempt to violate the, the conditions that make life itself tolerable. And 
It's aimed at dehumanization, destruction of the ideal, and at an even deeper level, revenge against the conditions of existence itself. I've tried to understand the developmental pathway that leads to acts like that. My academic research, as well as my clinical experience, has revealed to me that what appears to lie at the bottom of motivation for the excesses of behavior that characterize evil are two tightly causally related factors. One, arrogance. Another, resentment. And both of those are tied up with vulnerability of human beings in the face of the infinite, but but tied up with something more profound as well. The most thorough account of this that I've managed, I think, at least to partially comprehend, I believe is contained in the first couple of the stories in the Old Testament, in Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve and the fall of man, and the immediately following story of Cain and Abel. As far as we can tell, those are very, very old stories. They predate Judaism, at least in some of their in some of their structural elements. It's conceivable that some of the elements in those stories are as old as the human capacity to tell stories itself, assuming that they were grounded in an oral tradition that predated the written tradition. And we know that oral traditions can last, at least in some forms, unchanged for periods of up to 25,000 years. So the anthropological and archaeological evidence is fairly clear on that point. These are very, very, very old stories. And people remember them and created them for reasons we really don't understand. And they're, they're strange and mysterious and unforgettable all at the same time. The story of Adam and Eve, as far as I can tell, is the story of the coming of consciousness, the coming of self-consciousness to mankind. And I think that the human... The human, human self-consciousness is what separates us from animals. In Genesis, there's an insistence that when Adam ate the apple that Eve offered to him, the scales fell from his eyes, and the first thing that he realized was that he was naked. And what that seems to me to mean is that, I mean, I think it means, first of all, that women make men self-conscious. And I think there's ample reason to presume that, and there's good evolutionary reasons for suggesting why that might be the case, because sexual selection among human beings has been a primary force of evolutionary development and sexual selection in human beings is primarily conducted by women. So, for example, as Roy has pointed out in his address to the APA a few years ago, and I hope I get this right, twice as many of your relatives were women as, as men. And that means that women are more frequently reproductively successful than men and that they reject most men. And the rejection of a man for reproductive purposes by a woman is the most serious form of rejection that's possible from an evolutionary point of view because the judgment is that, well, you might be nice enough to talk to, but you're sure not fit to have your genes propagate into the next generation. So it's no wonder that women can make, self make men self-conscious. And I think there's some reason to presume that it's the sexual selection forces that women placed upon men that drove rapid human cortical evolution and the development of self-consciousness. Now, that's a leap, and there's no way I can justify that in the course of this particular uh, talk, but I think there is good reason to presume that it's the case. 
In Genesis, human beings become self-conscious, and the first thing that happens to them is that they realize they're naked, and then the next thing that happens to them is they develop the moral sense to tell the difference between good and evil. And it's a very strange thing, because in some sense, before a creature is self-conscious, there is no distinction between good and evil, because as I said before, a predator is not evil, it's just a predator. The fact of a predator, like a wolf, might be a tragedy for the rabbit, but you can't be assuming that the wolf is evil merely because it wants to eat the rabbit. But with the dawning of self-consciousness, there, there seems to be the emergence of a moral sense that's essentially unique to human beings. And that has something to do with our capacity to reflect upon the mechanisms of our action and then for some reason to be able to modify those actions and to choose which ones to implement into the future. In the future, we don't understand that, and you can even deny, if you'd like, that the, the phenomena of free choice exists, but our culture is essentially predicated on the notion that it does exist, and in the absence of evidence that it doesn't, I'm going to take the easy way out and assume that it does. Otherwise, things fall apart, and they fall apart badly. When, after Adam and Eve become self-conscious, the first thing they do is clothe themselves. And to me, that's a mythological description of the emergence of culture as an intercession between the, the fundamental vulnerability and nakedness of the human form and the depredations of nature. If you realize that you're vulnerable and, and, and prone to death, the first thing you're going to do is to start rearranging the manner in which you construe yourself so that you can protect yourself from such an unfortunate outcome. That's, I think, partly why God curses Adam with the necessity of work once he finds out, once God finds out that people have become self-conscious. Like, if you know that, what's, that winter is lurking in the future, for example, you're going to work. And animals don't work. They're just motivated to do whatever they do. But humans work, and that means they subvert their day-to-day -day motivations, their immediate motivations for the purposes of future security. And there's a real cost to that. I mean, part of the cost is separation from pure and unadulterated flow of animal life and I believe that people suffer from that absence of flow continually and, and, and the advantage they gain from it is that they can plan for the future but the disadvantage is that they're calculating and cold and separated from their own instinctual resources Eve of course is cursed by what's going to be terrible pain in childbirth and that's related to the development of the immense skull size that characterizes human infants and their incredibly lengthy period of dependence, which is also associated with their immense brain. After Adam and Eve become self-conscious, they hide. And this is actually a comical part of Genesis. It's never really read as a comedy, but it is a comedy. Even the fall itself is a comedy. And so they're hiding away behind a bush. And God comes walking through the garden and God... The infinite is accustomed to walking without him, with no interruption of the flow of information between them. Adam isn't there, and God says, you know, where, where have you gone? And Adam says, well, I'm, I'm hiding. And God says, which is kind of stupid, really. And, and this is why it's a comment. It's like he's hiding behind a bush. This is God, and he can see through bushes. And like Adam should know that. It doesn't really matter. He's hiding behind this bush anyways. And, uh, and God... So Adam says, I'm hiding, and, and God says, well, why are, well, you know, why are you hiding? Well, it's because Adam is ashamed, and Adam says, well, I'm naked. And this is an example of the tremendous compression of human wisdom into a few lines that characterizes mythology. You say, well, why would people hide from God once they realize they're naked? And I would say, well, that's pretty obvious. Like, once you know you're vulnerable. 
Or do you really have enough courage to manifest any sort of semblance of a divine destiny? Well, the answer to that is pretty much clearly no, and it's no bloody wonder. And so the hiding is, people hide when they're self-conscious and vulnerable. And what do they hide from? They, they hide from their deepest destiny, and it's no wonder. God says, okay, yeah, well, you figured that out, how that happened. And Adam says, and this is comical too, well, it's the woman's fault, which I think is really funny, and which actually may have been the original sin and not the eating of the apple, right? The first time that the man blamed the woman for his self-conscious misery, I think that's the real fall and not the rise of self-consciousness itself. Anyways, we know the rest of the story. God says, oh, well, the cat's out of the bag now, you know. You know you're vulnerable, and from here on in, history starts. You're out of paradise. You're out of unconscious identification with the natural world. You're going to work. You're going to sweat. Lots of the time it isn't going to work. And women, they're going to be beholden to their husbands, not because that's divine fiat, but because the developmental, the developmental dependency of a human infant is so extreme that women are cursed to rely on men for protection when they're at their most vulnerable. Fine. So that's self-consciousness and an explanation for why people would hide away from their destiny. But then the next story, the Cain and Abel story, really elaborates that out and describes it. And so Cain and Abel, of course, are two sons of Adam and Eve, and they're really the first people. Because, of course, Adam and Eve were made by God, so they're really not people at all, because people are born, and Cain and Abel are the first two people. And they characterize, as far as I can tell, two canonical patterns of reaction to the terrible vulnerability that's revealed as a consequence of the development of self-consciousness. Cain and Abel make sacrifices to God. Why? Human cultures make sacrifices. That's what they do. Sacrifice, sacrificial rituals, human universal. Blood sacrifices, human universal. Human sacrifice, at least in some anthropological epochs, was regarded as a human universal. Why do people make sacrifices to God? please them. It seems like a mystery to modern people. I ask my students, what sacrifices did you make to go to university? Well, they can answer that in two-tenths of a second. You know, they can't party as much as they might have. They, they can't drink nearly as much beer as they might have liked to. More seriously, a lot of them work. A lot of them have put their families in, in, in serious financial straits to send them to university. They've given up all sorts of things of action that they believe will best ensure their harmonious relationship with the nature of reality. Everyone makes sacrifices. Okay, we can say that now because we're psychologically sophisticated and linguistically sophisticated and we know something about human psychology. Thousands and thousands of years ago, before people had this explicit psychological acumen, the best they could do is act out and tell stories about human psychology because they hadn't developed any further than that. And Cain and Abel is one of those stories. <laughs>